My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, say something, do something. Get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. He was always different than every member of Congress. Everybody knew what he had done. He was John Lewis. Congressman Lewis gave us the blueprint to organize and to legislate. The reason why he's effective as a leader is because he's lived it. There are forces in America today want to take us back, but we're not going back. We're going forward. Voices and visions of courage and conscience from a documentary both timely and timeless. John Lewis, Good Trouble. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, the film's director and producer, Dawn Porter and Laura Mickelchison. First, the news. When John Lewis died in the summer of 2020, he left us a message. Together, he wrote, you can redeem the soul of our nation. His op-ed was published in the New York Times on the day of his funeral. He also left behind an amazing documentary, John Lewis, Good Trouble. With us today are the film's director, Dawn Porter, and producer, Laura Mickelchison. Your timing was incredible with this film, for good and for sad. I'll put it that way. But how did you both come to the decision that you would do this film? Laura and I had just finished the series Bobby Kennedy for President for Netflix, and the congressman was interviewed for that series. And he was just the star. I mean, he was so emotional and he told a story about organizing a rally for Bobby Kennedy in uh, 1968 in Indianapolis. And it was on the day that Dr. King was assassinated. Um, And so they had organized this rally and just as they're about to begin, they get this horrific news. Bobby Kennedy's uh, other aides who were white were advising him not to to go through with the rally. And a very young John Lewis said, you must speak to people, they need to hear from you. And he did, and Indianapolis is, uh, it's known as one of Bobby Kennedy's finest speeches. One of his finest hours. One of his finest hours, the only time that uh, he mentioned his his brother in a public address. Um, And Indianapolis did not burn that, that evening. So, Uh, When the congressman told that story, you know, I just thought there were so many other stories like this. You know, there's so much more. The bridge, um, the moment in Selma deserves all of the glory that it has been given, but there is so much more that we can uh, we can learn and that history, you know, requires that we explore. So so that really kind of started us thinking um, I work with this great archivist, Rich Remsberg. He had been kind of keeping a hope chest of <laughs> video clips that that moved him, and a lot of them involved the congressman. So all of that was kind of percolating in the background. And then CNN, you know, came to me and said, um, "Would you like to do this film?" And and so it was just. Um, you know, kind of being in that headspace of 1968 and the movement, you know, what an opportunity 
to explore a similar time frame from a very different vantage point. You know, first it was from the halls of power through the eyes of Bobby Kennedy, and then it was from on the ground activists through, you know, John Lewis's eyes. So, so it, it was a project that really spoke to me. The Monday after Bloody Sunday, after we were beaten in Selma, Dr. King came to my hospital bedside and said, John, don't worry. I issued a call for religious leaders to come. The events of Selma had been brought to a climax by a nighttime attack on a white Boston minister by white men. He died two days later. President Lyndon Johnson spoke to the nation. It's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. First time an American president recorded the words of the theme song of the movement. I was in the hospital from Sunday until about an hour ago. I don't know whether I will be able to participate in the march today. But it is my feeling that people all over this country, but particularly the people right here in Alabama, right here in Selma, should continue the march toward Montgomery. Would you set this clip up, please? I love going back in time with the congressman. And you always have to figure out what's the best way for your subject to get back, to go back in time so that they can help you relive their experiences. So we had uh, constructed three large screens. We brought the congressman to a soundstage, um, put him in the middle of those, and we created uh, Jessica Congdon, the fabulous editor. We created these mini archival sequences from his life and showed him this footage. So this is... Um, the this is after the initial Selma Bridge. John Lewis had been beaten on that bridge. Um, and then, you know, you see him remarkably against doctor's advice. He comes out of the hospital and says this march will continue. And uh, that, that's actually the name of the cue. Uh, the music cue here is this march will continue. You see like him triumphant and not and being unbowed and undeterred even after so much violence. But you also see in this particular clip, the congressman in 2019 reacting to footage of himself, you know, at the time of the Selma Bridge. Laura, let me bring you in here for a moment. How do you come to this film? Don asked me, <laughs> which is the most, you know, the, the biggest honor possible. But as she said, we, we had worked on the four-hour series, Bobby Kennedy for President. And I've been producing for most of my career, and I'd admired Dawn. Uh, we met, actually, formally in 2012, 2012, I think it was. She had just finished a film that had played at Sundance called Gideon's Army, and I loved it. And so I hadn't met her there, but I met her in New York, where we both were living at the time. And we just, there was an instant kind of, energy, creative, and vision. And I was really drawn to Dawn's um, passion for telling stories around 
social justice, civil rights, giving voice to people who don't necessarily have, you know, the opportunity to tell their stories. She's compassionate. She has an incredible creative sense. But also, I love um, the fact that she's not just intelligent and an amazing filmmaker, but she also has an, um, an intuition around character and subject. So it was a huge honor. And when we did film with the congressman for the Bobby Kennedy series, there was something very special, as Don has said, about the way he talked about not just his time as obviously a civil rights hero, as we all know and adore him for, but also as a, a legislator, as a policymaker, as a leader who was really creating for us, I think, so many important passages of bills um, and working representing not only his district in Atlanta, but also, you know, the American people and keeping, you know, everything that we have, you know, worked for since the 60s when he walked across Edmund Pettus, Pettus Bridge and sat at those lunch counters front and center. And as we've seen this summer with the Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, the, the movements in the streets, um, his message is as important as ever. And Don and I have a really great way of working. We live in different cities now, but we have a very simpatico, um, we communicate well, we, you know, kind of have each other's backs. I do the business, the finance, you know, the administrative side of producing. I support her, her vision. My job is really to keep the train on the tracks, as we say. Plus, I have to give credit, as Don has said, we have an amazing team from our editor, our archivist, our story producers. Um, we have an amazing supervising producer. So, and a lot of them are women. And it's a diverse group of, of women and men who all believe in Don's vision. I can tell you it's been one of the biggest, most pleasant experiences producing this film with Don and our, and our other partners, because we've had a great group of partners, you know, who, who joined forces with us, Eric Alexander, Ben Arnon, and then all our funders as well. Everyone was on the same page, and that's a rare and huge gift. The reason why I started with this clip is because I was really taken by watching John Lewis watch himself across a span of time. And as we are taping this, we've lost John Lewis by a matter of weeks. Um, we, are, we have gone through the summer of the George Floyd demonstrations. We have endured almost four years of Donald Trump as president. Um, and we have even gone through listening to his acceptance speech for his renomination for a second term um, in which he is calling forth extraordinarily um, throwback kinds of allocutions for a, a time of essentially that would be more recognizable to the people who uh, stormed against John Lewis on the Pettus Bridge than it is to many people right now. And I preface it that way because I'm watching him shake his head. And he's nodding his head, he's shaking his head as he's watching this. And I can think of many reasons to shake one's head as you're watching that. But did he tell you why he was responding to the film in the ways that he did? 
It was a remarkable afternoon. So we showed him a number of clips of footage, and I think you've really put your finger on it. Um, him, you know, when you were 80, he was approaching 80, mm -hmm. you were reflective and thinking about, you know, having the space and the time to really sink in, let it sink in what you've accomplished, but also to recognize what was happening in the world at that time. So that was the spring of 2019 that we filmed that. So pre-COVID, pre, but, but as you say, three years of a Trump presidency, three years of an assault on voting rights, of an assault on immigrants, of, uh, you know, discrimination against women, of rolling back the EPA legislation, all things that, that John Lewis cared about. So environmental um, protection, environmental protection, um, you know, cl climate change is a hoax. I mean, just, you're right, a, a real rollback. So I think um, what I see in, in that moment and what he expressed over the course of the day was um, remembering a remembrance of how important it was for President Johnson to utter those words. But it was also, you know, the thing I adored the most about the congressman is his uh, sense of fight. Mm -hmm. And that instead of bemoaning uh, the attacks on where we are, he was actually inspired to regroup and never lost optimism in an un shakable faith that we would overcome. And that is why we use that, his words, we let him close the movie because it's his story. It's his story, our story, history. We're talking about John Lewis, Good Trouble, with the film's director, Dawn Porter, and the producer, Laura Mickelchison. Here's the trailer. My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, yeah. not just, yeah. say something, yeah. do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. He was always different than every member of Congress. Everybody knew what he had done. He was John Lewis. We're marching today to dramatize to the world that hundreds and thousands of Negro citizens denied the right to vote. Congressman Lewis gave us the blueprint to organize and to legislate. The reason why he's effective as a leader is because he's lived it. We made a decision to march in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion from Selma to Montgomery. You are ordered to disperse that march will not continue. I was hit in the head. My knees went from under me. I thought I was going to down the bridge. If John Lewis, as a 19, 20 year old, wasn't doing what he did, I would not be here. We will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. The whole time he was in the movement, it was frightening, knowing the danger, knowing what could happen. You cannot replace a John Lewis. He's the most courageous person I ever met. Too many people struggled and died to make it possible for every American to exercise their right to vote. He challenges the conscience of the Congress. Bring common sense gun control legislation to the House floor. 
40 years later, John Lewis continues to inspire us. Are you with me? Let me hear you. Three civil rights workers that were murdered for trying to help people get registered to vote are looking down on us. This is a time for action. That's what I learned from John Lewis. There are forces in America today who want to take us back, but we're not going back. We're going forward. More on the Janice Adams Show after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show talking about the new documentary feature, John Lewis, Good Trouble, with our guests, director Dawn Porter and producer Laura Mickelchison. Here's a clip from the film. I would see those signs that said, white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. And I would ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents, why? And they would say, boy, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. But in 1955, 15 years old, the action of Rosa Parks, the words and leadership of Dr. King inspired me to get in trouble, what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. All of the people who participated on this, I'm sure among them, there were people who really may never have thought about John Lewis before you began doing the film. They may have heard about him, heard of him, known something of him, but collectively, what was the journey of the crew from free meat through, unfortunately, his death, but not before he goes to Black Lives Matter Plaza with a mask on. <laughs> you know, um, you're, you're right. And, I, you know, I also count myself in that group. Um, John Lewis is, you know, is of an age um, where his accomplishments are being forgotten. Um, well, all that they endured is, is we have to remind people of that history. So I think many people were already in somewhat awe of him, but primarily because they understood about the moment on the bridge. When we undertook the effort to uh, find archival that showed the persistence and uh, leadership over time, I think that is when admiration really turned to awe. And so everybody was really living this experience of constructing this film. So by the time we got to a place where we did his interview, I really like to do the master interviews later in the filming process so that, you know, we can really address all of the things that we've learned over the course of multiple interviews. So by the time we got to that interview, that was our largest day, um, Laura had to dig deep in her pockets <laughs> to make it possible. So we probably had 25 or 30 people on set that day. Um, and, and yet it was among the most intimate of interviews I've ever done. Um, to watch the Congressman watch himself, uh, to see his delight in some of the things that he was seeing, to see him shake his head, to see him re react. Um, 
was was incredibly moving. I, I think none of us ever experienced anything like it. And in fact, his chief of staff told Laura and I just recently that that was his favorite part of the of the process um, that day. You know, so after that, we went to dinner at a Mexican restaurant. The congressman came with us and stayed for several hours. Um, you notice when you spend time with, with John Lewis that he always seems to gravitate to the quietest person in the room. That's the person he greets first. Um, he, you know, was definitely not, he, he made way. He said hello to every single person, shook everyone's hand. So um, it was, it was, uh, I think the journey for us was to be part of bringing the story together. Um, I think we all had a really, really strong sense of purpose with this film. And um, that was only amplified uh, in his death. I think it also explains why, you know, so he was diagnosed in, uh, or we found out about it in December. So we were completely done with the movie. Um, and so it was, you know, it was devastating. We had followed around this vibrant, vigorous figure that we couldn't keep up with during filming. Um, and then to have this, this terrible diagnosis was, was quite a blow. So, uh, you know, the last few weeks have been very difficult for that reason. Laura, what about you? There are some fun anecdotes because the one other thing about the congressman I'll always remember is he had a great sense of humor and warmth. So he called us his documentary crew. And, you know, when we were filming with him, sometimes he'd be like, where's my documentary crew? Where's Dawn and my documentary crew? It was very sweet. So it was a familial experience in the best way. Um, as Don said, that last filming session was, which was long, all day in Washington on the arena stage, which is a theater in mm -hmm. Washington, a beautiful theater. Mm -hmm. And then that dinner, you know, he did, he, he really wanted everyone to know how grateful he was. I mean, it's crazy. You know, he was thanking us for spending almost a year filming with him. And Don has an amazing process when she films. You know, it's a lot of verite. And she spent a lot of time with the congressman over that year period of filming and, and you know, building trust, building an understanding, storytelling. You know, we were in Atlanta. We were in D.C. Then she went and spent time with Reverend Lawson. She actually went to L.A. and took the workshop that he offers on nonviolent protests so that she understood as a filmmaker what all of those students who at the time, you know, were part of SNCC, what they went through. So we, we were culminating this film on basically many of the journeys that the congressman went through through his life, which I think is amazing. And sometimes I didn't understand, but Don was like, I'm going to go do the workshop. I'm like, really? Okay. But like that integrity and, under, and need to understand what, what was happening at the time and what the congressman was engaging in. Mm -hmm. really framed the story in, in a really, I think, compelling and informative way. And you've also, you know, his team, his, his, he has an Atlanta and a DC team and, and staff who've also become part of our family. And there's a, you know, we have text threads, which are fun and they were emotional, especially during the six days of his funeral. You know, that was a very emotional week for all of us. I think I cried every day for that week, but he, um, I think it was passing the torch 
and the baton after he was diagnosed last December, you know, consoling us in a way. Don got to show the film to him in February. Wasn't it Valentine's Day, Don? Mm -hmm. And he went to DC and, and shared the film with him. He loved it. it. Was, you know, really he really embraced it and Don and, and all of us. And then we had one final honor where in May, um, we had asked his chief of staff, Michael Collins, you know, can we do a Q&A? And in normal circumstances, we would be in a theater like we were, Janice, you know, together showing the film and doing you know, a Q&A. And he couldn't, obviously, in the middle of COVID, none of us were traveling. And so we did a Q&A that was a virtual Q&A um, with our distributor, Magnolia, and asked who would he like to be interviewed by. Don was directing it. And he said, would Oprah do it? And so, you know, we got to Ms. Winfrey and she immediately said, yes, of course. So that was end of May. And he did that interview with Oprah Winfrey, which is very moving and, and really, and also his humor comes out, you know, because she's joking with him about, are you eating? Are you taking care of yourself? And he always deflected anything that he was going through, whether it was treatments, you know, chemo, et cetera. He never talked about that. He never complained. He was like, I'm eating, I'm eating not enough, a little of this, a little of that, you know. You need to eat more of that, Congressman. But um, I'll just never forget that he always, always deflected anyone's concern about him onto how are you? You know, he he was he was very warm and I would say firm as a leader. I, that's what I learned is how filled with conviction he was. And that's we do very well at the you know halfway no three quarter mark of the film. When Don starts listing his accomplishments, bills signed, bills passed, you know, bills taken to the Senate, et cetera, the work he did, it was a long tail. His life and career were a long tail example. And that's what I am now every day thinking of. What I don't get done today, I will move on to tomorrow. And, you know, the arm of justice is long and it swings as we know. So the work we all have to do is a lifetime of work for social justice. I'm glad that you mentioned that because when you were speaking about that, I was saying, well, you know, we speak of him as a civil rights leader, which in a way is limiting because of the magnitude of the man. Um, but I want to transition it to what you learned from him about leadership, what you learned from him about being on the front lines physically or metaphorically. What did you learn from him that you have now been able to bring into your own life's day to day? You know, all during the uh, filming, there were a lot of, of really disturbing things that happened, you know, um, or, or things that had just happened, you know, children in cages and, um, you know, just so many difficult um, circumstances. And, you know, there would be times I'd be, I'd say, oh, Congressman, did you hear this? This happened or that happened or woe is us. And he would, you know, kind of say, that's why people need to vote. And that's why we need to do, you know, X, Y, or Z. But really shifting the conversation to, well, what can you do? Not, and not, in a, in not scolding, but guiding so that the conversation instead of, a, you know, complaining, crying, upset kind of situation was more of a, a, a rally for what can you do? Where can you start? 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I always joke, my husband started calling him my life coach because he's like, I was like, you know, the congressman says, we, and he's like, John Lewis, your life coach. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think what I definitely saw was um, a person who paid attention to smaller good things. He really um, enjoyed people coming up and and greeting him. You know, a lot of people are bothered by that or, you know, they they find it a chore. And he was really energized by it. Um, He could always find something positive to say or point to. And and I think um, there was definitely, he had a leadership style that while he could see the whole field, he was very focused on what is the, the concrete next thing that you can do today. So I think the thing that I learned is that is how he be, did not get overwhelmed because he wasn't looking to create a march on Washington. He was looking to make a speech about what you need to do tomorrow. I mean, this was such a fascinating story to, to dive into. John Lewis was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. He, you know, was head of, you know, SNCC at this time. Um, he was really um, influenced and admiring of some of the older, and by older, I mean, they were probably 40, maybe 50 <laughs> You know, but he was in his 20s and Dr. King was in his 30s. So these were like the deans of the civil rights movement. This is, you know, a boy from a small farm in Alabama was now speaking to Roy Wilkins. He was speaking to the head of the NAACP. He was in meetings with Congress people. Um, and so as he's preparing this speech, um, but he still was the fiery youth, you know, he was definitely kind of the AOC of his day. Um, and he writes his speech and, and Bernard Lafayette, who I had the pleasure of interviewing also a civil rights hero and, and uh, leader said, you know, um, John wrote something like we will march into town like Sherman. And people thought, um, you know, if you have to think of the times, like yeah. a bunch of black people gathering then as now mm-hmm. was intimidating to white people. And it was intimidating so much so that President Kennedy was opposed to the March on Washington. He thought it would be, you know, violence and and unrest. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that going in, the deans of the civil rights movement had a lot to say about young John Lewis's speech and asked him to change his speech. Um, so they were up all night. He revised it. Uh, but I still think it's it's one of the best speeches um, I've ever heard. It's one of the best speeches he's ever given. And, um, you know, after the march and after his hugely successful speech, um, they went to see President Kennedy, who, uh, as Mr. Lewis said, he was beaming like a proud father. Um, I took that out because... I, you know, but that is how the congressman felt is that he, he really, that, that Kennedy was really proud that it had all gone so well. Um, I was at the march. I was a kid, but I was at the march. And I usually say my mother took me to that march just the way I took my daughters to 
um, when Mandela came to the country and my daughters took my granddaughter to march for Trayvon. That is what we do. You know, mm -hmm. we, we do what we must to keep this thing going. But I do remember that Kennedy, when, when you say the congressman said, Kennedy was beaming like a proud father. Um, indeed, they had closed Congress that day because they were the this is in part what we're still going through with this insanity of police being allowed to just shoot any black person they feel like when they feel like it Be, and then say, well, I felt threatened. You know, what do you feel threatened by? You feel threatened by your own lies to yourself. That's what you feel threatened by. And at that point, the Congress was still telling itself all of its lies about what Black people were and would do. They were to totally shocked by, um, by the way the day went. They were also shocked that the place was left in such great shape, the mall. And one of the things that you know, that I look at when I look back at some of those clips is that I'm always struck by the fact that people were dressed up for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, you see people eat hot, hot mm -hmm. day in August and they were dressed up for that day. Did any of John Lewis's family actually get to attend the march? I don't believe they did. Um, you know, they had said, you know, many times that he, you know, was different from his family. He wanted to be out in the world. He wanted to move beyond the farm. Um, you know, he came from a really large family, you know, many children. Um, they also described, so, so two things um, I'm thinking about in, in what you just said. One is we went, we took, we went back to Troy, Alabama with him, um, met several of his siblings, the boy from Troy. But on that day, um, we filmed a little bit with uh, a number of his classmates, as he calls them, his people from his high school came and we sat outside on a warm you know, spring day under a beautiful shade tree, and they just shared stories. They shared stories about segregation, about how humiliating it was. Uh, but they also shared about when John joined the movement, how they would crowd around a radio and try and listen to see if they could hear his name. Because, you know, for any number of reasons, they couldn't be where they wanted to be out in the front lines. They were responsible to their families. Their families, some, some families said no. Some people had to work. Um, you know, some people weren't brave enough, you know. And, and uh, what I loved about that is how they all pinned their hopes on him, just as so many of us are doing now. And he knew that, welcomed it never uh, shamed anybody for not joining. Um, they could have also been, in many cases, the police used to stand outside of marches. That's like right. we're worried about right now with what the New York City Police has recently done. Take people's names, go to their employer, or go to them and say, does your employer know that you're marching? It was total intimidation so it could also have been a protection 
Absolutely. And that was also, you know, his parents were very worried, um, understandably. And that was not an idle worry, as we all know. But the second thing I, I wanted to mention is when you watch the footage of John Lewis and the other young people who were really the leaders of the movement, they are always dressed up. And that is a sign of respect. They, that was a strategy to say, we are worthy of your respect. We are professional. We may be young, but we understand. It was this, you know, it's the same way I think of, you know, my grandmother, you dress up to go to church. (laughs) You dress up where you're going any place where you need to be respectable. And well, so, that's the word, respectable. <laughs> respectable. For these young people whose humanity was being denied, mm-hmm. um, that was a uniform, you know, to make sure that, and, and they were very aware of the images that would be portrayed. More on the Janice Adams Show. John Lewis, good trouble after the break. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show talking about the new documentary feature, John Lewis, Good Trouble, with our guests, director Dawn Porter and producer Laura Mickelchison. Dawn, where do you come from and how did your family relate to the movement? I grew up in New York. My family is from New York City. Both my parents grew up in Harlem. My mother is a Robeson. So she's, uh, Ben Robeson is my great-grandfather. Paul Robeson is my my great-great-uncle. So there was always kind of conversation about um, activism activities. My grandmother's phone was bugged because uh, they used to have meetings in her apartment in New York City. So that was always like the frame in the background for, for my life. And then going to school in the 80s, and, and I think coming into the early 90s, like I lived in Washington, D.C. I wanted to, I wanted to be there. So we lived on Capitol Hill. <laughs> and, you know, we would go to protests like people go to the movies. I mean, it was like the environmental march, you know, Reagan's not paying attention, the AIDS quilt. I mean, it was just kind of the fabric of life is, you know, Washington. It's something I miss about Washington, that that people are so in tune with, you know, issues and national and local issues. So the great thing, Janice, about Dawn's mother, Donna, is I call her our fifth producer, because seriously, she's, you know, organizing She's a great organizer. Yes. An organizer. She is like, I get texts from Donna saying, you know, creating this campaign, want to bring this group in. So she's still organizing and is very much, she's super proud, obviously, of the film and the work that Don has done. But she's, she's an advocate for us because she's helping get the film out on a, you know, virtual distribution. Her full name is? Donna Purchase. Yeah. Laura, I want to know the same thing from, from you, your family. Where do you come from? I'm Canadian, so I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in the prairies in the middle of Canada. Um, And I'm the daughter of a social worker and a nurse. Not dissimilar from Don's family. My parents were social justice kind of advocates from a young age and always taught us that we were very privileged and we have to give unto others. So, you know, I grew up, my family was very 
Catholic. I wouldn't say they were religious, but, you know, Catholic upbringing. And just it was a part because my father was a social worker and working with indigenous communities and very active in supporting indigenous communities. We just grew up in a household that typically was volunteering four to five days a week, you know, at something or another, some community outreach, health. My mother was also a teacher. She taught young nurses and really believed in nursing profession as being a giving profession. And then I did, you know, I went to university in Winnipeg, my hometown for my first degree. And I did social anthropology and psychology and volunteered at every single event, whether it was, you know, a film festival, the folk festival, we had our peace marches. They were tiny in comparison to what we have in New York, but, you know, I, I, I participated in everything. And actually I learned about, you know, the civil rights movement in university because at the university of Manitoba, we had a lot of American professors who had actually left the U S dodging the draft. So yes. we had, we had amazing professors who were Americans. So I did American history, American literature. And that's when I learned about, you know, the March on Washington, about, I learned about Martin Luther King, you know, the, the civil rights activists and heroes through my Canadian education, which is very interesting. And, and so it was just a part of me. And then I moved to Toronto and, and then New York in 2005. Mm -hmm. So I have had a great trajectory, small town, bigger, biggest. It's been amazing. And now I'm a New Yorker. Don, let me ask you about what's next. I just finished a feature film about uh, President Obama's White House photographer, Pete Sousa. Um, and what I love about this film is it really was an incredible path from telling the John Lewis story. You know, the congressman's life was all about exhorting people to speak up and speak out. And Pete Sousa, you know, was a person who always spoke with his pictures, and but otherwise was pretty silent. And after seeing Donald Trump come into office, decided he really needed to use his voice. So very much uh, a story of his journey to, to speaking out, um, but also a reminder of what leadership looks like, uh, what a leader with empathy, intelligence, a work ethic, and compassion is. Uh, so, um, you know, I think these films, although they're totally different style and uh, they very much speak to each other. So it's called The Way I See It. And it's about uh, Pete Sousa, who was a two-time White House photographer. When we speak about Pete Sousa, um, what does his work tell you about beauty? Pete has a remarkable eye and the access that he was granted, you know, he spent eight years with President Obama. He took two million photographs um, and they had a very close relationship. And because of that, he was allowed to access unstaged, intimate moments. And an intimate moment could be in a meeting with staffers. It could be, but some of the photos that I love the most are um, President Obama with children um, and President Obama with his family. You can see the depth of his love and care for his family, but also for Americans. You can see him. I, I see beauty in the lines in his face. 
because I know that those lines are reflective of a person who cares deeply and is making a hard decision that is not about him. It's about the rest of us. So um, there are some photos that, you know, Pete will say, oh, that's not my best photo, but that I really, really loved because it was really kind of a depiction of, of the process of caring. I did a series for year 400 called About the Latter End of August. And the closing image was Pete Souza's photograph of the Obama's hands on a railing. I thought that is one of my favorite photos. It's blue in the background, and he captured a moment between the two of them where most Michelle Obama's hand is on the president's. And even in public, even in when the eyes of the world are on them, that they could carve out a private moment to say, I am here, I am with you, I am beside yes. you, I support you. Um, and you know, the lightness of the touch that you can even see in the photograph. That's it, right. It's their moment. We all now happen to be able to see it. But his eye for capturing that. And, and I think that that speaks to the trust that the Obamas had for him. But it also speaks of the love that he really does have for the president and his family. Um, I think that being around them changed him. I think that, um, you know, to not put too fine a point on it, um, when you have, the, we understand, you know, generalization coming why black people love the Obamas and the, what they represent. Mm -hmm. And I think we see in Pete's photographs, a recognition of how hard it was to do what they did to operate at the highest levels of intellect <laughs> and compassion, but to also create a space for love and peacefulness. Yes. In eye of that huge storm. And that would be a challenge for any person. But to add to that, the burden of racism and how beautifully the family was able to navigate that, I think that really made a huge impression on Pete. Laura, I want to know the same thing from, from you, which is what's next for you? I have a full-time day job. I'm chief creative officer for a production company called Blue Ant Media. And we're busy with you know, 27 projects in development. We have companies all over the world, in New York, in Los Angeles. We have a division, you know, our headquarters in Toronto, or we're in New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Beijing. So I'm up pretty much 20 hours a day, Jen, is working on developing new documentary projects, new series and scripted. A couple of things on the, coming down the pipeline, though, on the documentary side, which I'm excited by is I've been working for a number of years with Marina Zenovich, a director out of Los Angeles on a governor, Jerry Brown film. Jerry Brown. What is it? Governor Moonbeam. Is that like exactly <laughs> Moonbeam governor? You got it. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. It's, a, it's true. That's what, that's what he was. That was. Yeah. His, his, and you know, I went to graduate school in California. <laughs> so that's a feature documentary. Um, Carolyn Sue is a director that I've known and admired for a long time. She brought me a project on Gene Neidich, who was the founder of Weight Watchers. And so it's, it's a complete right turn from politics, but wow. very powerful. And I think under, I didn't know her. So under known 
female young entrepreneur from the 60s who created this whole phenomenon called Weight Watchers. And then I have one film that just got accepted into Venice Film Festival in less than a month, and it's called The Rossellinis. And it's the story of Roberto Rossellini, the Italian filmmaker. And Isabella, because I know and have produced Isabella Rossellini's short films. So yes, that's you're so you know it too. So it's been a busy summer, even though I'm in COVID land, I'm working away all the time. And then the other one other program that I've been proud of this summer, we launched um, in Canada, we launched Drag Race with World of Wonder, RuPaul's Drag Race. Well, one thing though, is each of them are character driven. I think for me, people are always at the center of the story. Uh And people and movements, and people who've created some kind of change and are, I, I think, um, representative of excellence, right? Whether it's political excellence, civil rights excellence, artistic excellence, you know, creative excellence and acceptance, diversity, acceptance and excellence. That's yeah. I kind of gravitate to those stories. It's interesting that you've kind of tied that up that way. Back to the John Lewis film. When you think of a, of a takeaway, especially now, I mean, I've been concerned about the timing in which we lose him. And especially losing Elijah Cummings, who it's so wonderful that you have him on, but then also um, C.T. Vivian right before. I hear end of an era, but I hope not. I agree. We are, we've all been devastated by the loss of, you know, a rep, rep Cummings and Congressman Lewis. And of course, personally, I felt like, oh, just please live to the end of the year. Help us get through this election. Help us, you know, be the change. But I think he passed the baton. And I think his last years of life, he really was creating succession. You know, everything he did was about the next generation and inspiring the next generation of leaders, of leadership. Even here in our district, you know, Rep. Antonio Delgado, he talks about how inspiring the congressman was for him to enter and engage in politics. So I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful, though sad that, funny, on my wall, in, by my desk here, I have, you know, Congressman Lewis and, you know, Ms. Harris, our hopeful next VP, mm-hmm. because I really think Kamala Harris represents exactly what we're talking about is, is hope for the future. You know, a woman who's black and South Asian and is under 60 years of age <laughs> and is really leading a movement of women, women in leadership. And it's these women who are challenging the, you know, the president now and his, you know, team for the righteousness and justice. So also I believe students, the Parkland students, I believe the students, I never yeah. underestimate anyone between the ages of 18 and 25. That's, that's our future. We have more 18 year olds entering this election in November than ever before. The largest number coming of age for voting. If every single one of those 18 year olds votes, I really have faith that we will be in a new era. So that's what I'm banking on. My thanks to Laura Mickelchison, producer of the new documentary John Lewis Good Trouble, to Dawn Porter, the film's director, and to you for joining us today. To watch clips from the film, visit my website, janosadams.com. <laughs>
in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. <laughs>